Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's great to be back with you today on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you for joining us this week as you do week after week. We have a great show, we hope, lined up for you today. We will be talking to Emily Malloy of Theology of the Home. She's out with a new book that celebrates the seasons, integrates, helping you to integrate the celebration of the seasons through flowers and decoration in your home as a pathway to beauty. We're excited to talk to Emily. My colleague Maureen Ferguson will be joining me for that part of the show. We will also be including, I'll be reading from my a piece that I that I published in Angelus News. And I published a piece on my experiences with women who regret their abortions and suffer with uh, the guilt and the desire for mercy and the inability to, to really accept forgiveness and mercy from God. I hope you like that. But first, we welcome to the show Holly Ordway. She's with Word on Fire Institute, and she has written a book on Tolkien and his spiritual life that um, I'm very excited to talk to her about. Tolkien is one of my favorite authors here in our house. We love The Lord of the Rings and his connection to his the way that, that his faith informs his work is, is fascinating. Welcome to the show, Holly. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Holly, you've, you've tackled in your book, Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography, one of really an enduring an enduring masterpiece and obsession with so many people, which is Tolkien and his beautiful saga, The Lord of the Rings. And I know in my own house, for instance, I have three sons and a husband, and they're all passionate about The Lord of the Rings. And of course, one doesn't have to be a man to be passionate about The Lord of the Rings and the things, the, the beautiful stories that it tells and the, the truths that it conveys. Uh, but definitely, it's it's something that, that men and boys adore. And I'm really glad that you've, you've taken this step to deepen our understanding of Tolkien's faith, because obviously it shines through and everything that he writes but maybe sometimes those all those details are are opaque to to us who don't know so much about him i wonder if this is uh the reason that you wrote your book tolkien's faith well one of the reasons i wrote it is that his faith really has been not explored um broadly speaking there's no book that deals with it there's no full-length treatment of his faith and the current biographers um the existing biographers uh, they'll mention that he's a christian that he's a catholic but then kind of move on you know for instance his major biographer humphrey carpenter you know, acknowledges that he was a devout catholic but attributes it entirely to a devotion to his mother who has you know who became a catholic and then died when he was a boy and i found this just really unsatisfactory because he endured a lot of suffering a lot of difficulties in his life um, he went, grew up, and lived his life at a time when it was very difficult to be a Catholic in 20th century England. And it seemed to me that there had to be more to his story of faith than just a sort of emotional attachment. And and I was right. Uh, there's mm-hmm. really a lot, a lot there, a lot more to his faith, a lot more substance to it, a lot more nuances and depths. And I discovered you know, that it was really hard won, that it really was a, a generous, a generous spirited faith. It was 
just much more dynamic and much more interesting than even I, who have been you know, thinking and writing about Tolkien for 30 years, even than I expected. And I also realized that if Catholics may not realize the depth of his faith, there are so many readers of Tolkien who don't know anything at all about his faith. They may not even know that he was a Christian, let alone a Catholic. And so to help them to understand something about the life of, of this man whose work they admire so much. I really wanted to do that because not only is there no book that really treats of his faith biographically, the books that discuss his Christian faith typically tend to assume a shared commitment with the reader. They assume that the reader is already a Christian, knows all the references. What does it mean to say he had a Marian devotion or a devotion to the Eucharist? But there are so many millions of Tolkien fans for whom those words are a complete mystery. And I thought this is an aspect of their favorite author's life that they don't have any access to. Let me open the way to them. And that's that's another thing that I was trying to do in this biography. I was just in England, and I think you have just come back from England. One of the places that we visited was the Blackfriars Church in Oxford, where Tolkien attended Mass every day and served Mass in a, in a little side altar. And that was a daily... Well, let me actually... Mm -hmm. Actually, that, that's that's not that's not accurate. I'm afraid. <laughs> oh no! Thank you. No, no. Tell me, please, because I know that these um, sometimes these uh, so they're like urban myths, right, around our favorite authors. Exactly, um, and it's interesting because many people take they just say automatically that Tolkien went to mass daily. There's no evidence that he did. He hmm. certainly was a regular mass goer, and he believed in the importance of frequently going to mass. Um, but with his extremely busy schedule, he had four children, a busy a professional life, very busy professional life. He he went regularly and encouraged that, but not necessarily every day. And Blackfriars was not the uh, church that he would have been would have been going to regularly. In any case, in Oxford, it would have been uh, either his parish church, St. Gregory and Augustine, or it would have been St. Aloysius. Blackfriars, he did have an interesting connection there, um, which was, well, two connections. One is that he did serve at Mass once there when there was a um, Mass said for the repose of his soul, of the soul of his friend Charles Williams, and he served at Mass there. But that was a bit of an exceptional case. That wasn't a church that he normally um, attended. But also, interestingly, um, it was at Blackfriars um, that he read his story, Smith of Wooten Major, for the first time oh. as part of an interesting, as part of an ecumenical endeavor. It was a joint um, activity with Pusey House next door. Pusey House is the Anglo-Catholic um, house in Oxford, and they had a joint lecture series on literature and the understanding of life. And Tolkien was one of the one of the speakers, and he chose to read his newly written story, Smith of Wooten Major. And the house was packed. They they had people overflowing into the hallways. They had something like seven hundred people when they normally expected about a hundred. So he did have a connection with Blackfriars in that sense. This was in the in the late sixties. Well, the myth has been propagated, and when one visits Blackfriar, one is told in great detail <laughs> what I just told you. And interestingly, there are the the images of the Way of the Cross. There we are told, and maybe this is not true either, that, that the images of Pontius Pilate and the other Roman torturers they look like his trolls, not the trolls. What are they called? The, the orcs. The yes. orcs. They look. They do look like orcs. So maybe that's not true either. But whatever. I think it's wonderful that he was ever at Blackfriars. <laughs> and thank you for clearing that up that up for us. Many of our readers even though they're Catholic and they have read Tolkien, they may not know that his mother was a convert. You mentioned his mother earlier. His mother was a convert, which was a tremendous, as you said, there was there was a bigotry against Catholics in England. She suffered from, from both sides of her family, from the, her husband's family and, and hers. She suffered rejection for converting. She was a widow uh, when she converted, or maybe she converted just before her husband died when, when Tolkien was very young and his brother. Um, and Tolkien himself called his mother a martyr. So there must be a martyr to her faith. 
because of her hardship that she endured. So there must be a very beautiful connection, um, which doesn't tell the whole story, but I assume the, the connection is there. Oh, yes, it was a huge, he, he, tremendous influence on, on his entire life. So Tolkien's father, Arthur, died when he was only um, four years old. So he he was had his mother was widowed quite young, and she at that point was still an Anglican. Moved to Birmingham with her two boys, again still still an Anglican, and it was there um, as she's raising her two sons as a widow um, that she becomes a Catholic, and she does it. She is received into the church, um, and then um, becomes a parishioner at the Birmingham Oratory, which really becomes formational in Tolkien's life because the the spirituality of the oratory is well. This thing I, I unpack in the book. <laughs> quite a lot is really important in his life. But interestingly, it was also a really savvy choice on his mother's part, because one of the things I discovered in my research was that the oratorians in Birmingham, they were themselves almost all converts. So they understood that journey that she had taken. And also they were particularly supportive of convert women, because at that time it was quite common for, for instance, grandparents or in-laws to try to have lawsuits to take away the children of convert women. Oh my. Um, Yeah. To prevent them from being raised, you know, as, as terrible papists. And so she was really vulnerable as a widow with two sons whom she's raising in the Catholic faith now and with her entire family very unhappy about this. So her becoming connected with the Birmingham Oratory really shows a lot of sort of prudence and wisdom in her choice. And it's from the group of Oratorians that they meet Father Francis Morgan, who becomes then the boy's guardian. And, you know, Mabel died, his mother Mabel died when he was 12. And so it's under Father Francis's care that the boys then then grow up. And so Tolkien always did see his mother as, you know, as a white martyr, as a martyr to her faith, because they were living in a, a fair bit of poverty because the family had cut off financial support to, to his mother as, a you know, an inducement, a pressure to get her to come back to the Anglican fold. And, you know, she so, she so easily could have, uh, and then it would have made life easier for her. You know, she would have had the approval of her in-laws and her own parents. She would have had more financial support, but she stuck firm to her faith, even though it cost her strain and suffering and poverty. And I think that commitment uh, really resonated with Tolkien. Tell our, our listeners about stepping stones in his faith, sort of the, his journey of faith, because I imagine it's not as simple as as being, uh, well, you just said, it's not as simple as, as loving your mother and understanding her, her her tremendous devotion to the faith and wanting to emulate her in that. It, there must have been tremendous challenges going living as a Catholic in, in, in anti-Catholic England. Absolutely. And one of the first was right after his mother died, because he's now an orphan at age 12. And he later wrote of his guardian, Father Francis Morgan, that Father Francis had taught him charity and forgiveness. And I think that's significant because he's recalling the way that that Father Francis had mentored him and and helped him get through the difficulties of grieving for his mother. And one of the neat things about Father Francis' guardianship is that he could have just sort of put the boys in a protective bubble and insulated them from any contact with their you know, extended family, who were all Protestants. And instead, he he actually encouraged the boys to develop and renew relationships with, with their grandparents, with their aunts and uncles and cousins. So by the time Tolkien's a teenager, he has positive relationships with his extended family. And I think that's part of that learning of charity and forgiveness that he got from Father Francis, because he must have been resentful of the way that his extended family had had pulled away from his mother when she became a Catholic. And yet he was able to learn how to relate with them, even though they still didn't approve of him being a Catholic and he was still a Catholic, he was able to have these, these positive relationships. And I think that's a 
really a challenging thing for him to go through and he and a big step in his face and then he has a whole struggle that he has to deal with he falls in love with this this girl edith who eventually becomes his wife but father francis um forbade him to see her for three years until he came of age because he was basically so distracted by his love for edith that he wasn't doing his studies and he failed his first attempt at a scholarship <laughs> exam and so Father Francis says, no, no, you cannot see her um, until you, you know, until you come of age. And the astonishing thing is that Tolkien obeyed. It was really hard and painful for him. He admitted that. And he could have chosen to deceive his guardian because he went off to Oxford. He was still under this obligation. He could have written to Edith and, and Father Francis wouldn't have known. But he kept his word mm -hmm. because he loved, he loved Father Francis as a second father and he recognized that he had owed a filial obedience to him. And afterwards said, you know, reflecting on this, that really that three-year stint was the only <clears throat> was the only thing that would have allowed a boyish boyish love to harden into a firm commitment, which it did. You know, he 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 did reconnect with Edith, and they did get married, and they were married for fifty-five years until you know until she died. So, but that was also very challenging, and he had to come to grips with you know what does it mean to be obedient? What does it mean to to sacrifice for you know for someone you love? He gets through that, and then what what happens just momentarily after his his wedding he's just finished his honeymoon basically and he has to go off to the front lines of world war one um where he served as a signals officer and he was in the trenches he was fighting at the battle of the somme and this is tremendously devastating experience and he gets through it with his faith intact his health severely damaged because he contracted trench fever which became chronic and he was never really quite well again so again, another major challenge as he's facing the problem of evil, you know, face to face, he comes through it. And then interestingly, after the war, he goes through a dry spell, a period of probably some years where he says, I almost ceased to practice my religion. Now, he didn't completely cease. He almost ceased. But it's definitely a barren stretch. Um, and, you know, all sorts of things can be going on there, reaction after the war. But he went through a barren stretch and then... He, he restores his faith and then he, he becomes stronger in his faith. He comes back to Oxford and there's a renewed commitment to it. And from, from then on, it's, you know, it's, it's really well-grounded. But I think it's really helpful to realize that when we look at the mature Tolkien in Oxford, this major Catholic figure, that he went through some real ups and downs. And it was not always easy for him by any means and he had to learn to continue with his, his life of faith, even, even when he felt dry. If you're just joining us, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Holly Ordway. She's the author of several books on J.R.R. Tolkien, including the latest called Tolkien's Faith, a Spiritual Biography. Holly Ordway is the Cardinal Francis George Professor of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute and a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is a subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. Holly, connect, connect if you can, in a concise way, because this is a, an enormous topic. Uh, Tolkien's uh, spirit, his his Catholic spirituality and his, and the Lord of the Rings, which I think is very important because many of us, even though we may be practicing Catholics and have a lot of theology under our belts, it's hard for us to um, understand the allegory and the myth in in Lord of the Rings inside of the in view of the Christian of the Christian story. Well, I think, you know, Tolkien explained it 
concisely by in one letter by saying that the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. And that word fundamental, I think, is important. Then he goes on to say that it was because of that that he cut out almost all references to religion in the work. And I think that paradox is important. Like, wait a second, he just says it's fundamentally religious and Catholic, and that's why he cut out all the overt references. And it is because he goes on to say that the religious element is in the story and the symbolism. It's imbued in it. Now, he's quite clear that The Lord of the Rings is not an allegory. There's no there's no specific one to one correspondences. There's quite a lot of what he calls applicability. Like we can recognize, um, for instance, that there are there are many Christ figures in the story. You know, Frodo is a is a Christ figure as the suffering servants. Aragorn is a Christ figure as you know Christ the King. Gandalf is a Christ figure in you know the, his his death and and resurrection. But there's not a one to one pattern. But what we have is an underlying ethos that imbues the whole thing because he is so deeply grounded in his faith that it that it comes out. He's very clear that the that the God of Middle Earth is the one God. It is God. So we see, for instance, providence working through through the whole story um, and the workings of, of the importance of mercy and pity and cooperating with providence are a really important theme throughout the whole book. And of course, there are lots of other sort of um, gleams there's Marian images, like Galadriel is, is a Marian figure, um, and the Lembes bread has very much a Eucharistic connection. It's, it has a very Eucharistic tone to it, a resonance to it, you might say. Uh, and so these are all things that if we understand that it's fundamentally Catholic, we can, we can catch them. They're like gleams. But what really is the bedrock is his understanding of basically the way the world works. There is such a thing as, as good. <laughs> there is such a thing mm-hmm. as evil. Do you think- think that people who read um, Tolkien, and again, it's so popular amongst young people, especially young men, I think, that's at least my experience. Do you think that people who read or watch his movies, or watch the movies of the books, are they are they able to imbibe, even though they don't understand Christian or Catholic theology? Are, you think they're getting that that spiritual help that that is in, that is fundamental to his work? Yes, I think so, and I think that's exactly what Tolkien was getting at. Um, he didn't want to do it overtly; that wasn't that just wasn't the way he worked. But he talks at one point about wanting it to be exemplary. But he wanted it to show forth, you know, certain virtues into, you know, into the world. And I think we get that. I mean, people really do respond to what they're finding in The Lord of the Rings. And I think that's because it's the reality of it that Tolkien is, is presenting. Um, and certainly that was the case for me. I mean, I'm a convert and I loved Lord of the Rings long before I knew anything about anything Christian. It's something that um, one of his one of his uh, fans wrote him a letter and said that The Lord of the Rings seemed to be full of, of light from an invisible lamp. And I've always thought that was a a really insightful comment from a reader because that light does kind of pour out of the Lord of the Rings. You have this true heroism and true suffering that you're suffering for a worthy cause, Mm self-sacrifice and beauty and beauty that's more real than evil. And that's fundamentally a Christian understanding of the world, but it's accessible to people who maybe are are off put by Christianity or don't understand Christianity, they're going to respond to the beauty of it because they're responding to the, well, to the real thing. Um, And even the fundamental structure of the story, Tolkien um, wrote in his essay on fairy stories 
that the reason that we respond to the unexpected happy ending, like we get in The Lord of the Rings, we respond to it because it's a hint of the resurrection, because the resurrection of Christ is the happy ending of the story of the incarnation, and the incarnation is the happy ending of the story of human history. So every time our heart lifts at a happy ending in a story, we're really participating in some way in the cosmic joy of the resurrection. And since that's real, whether you recognize it or not, everyone is able to kind of be touched by that a little bit as they're reading. Oh, that's quite perfect, Holly. Thank you so much uh, for ex explaining that so beautifully. And, and thank you for writing your book. It's called Tolkien's Faith, A Spiritual Biography. We highly recommend it at Conversations with Consequences. And where can our listeners buy it? Um, well, you can get it directly through the publisher, Word on Fire, if you go to wordonfire.org slash Tolkien. Um, and that's probably the fastest way to get it. And you can also buy it on Amazon. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Holly. And good luck with your book. All right. Thanks very much. Friends, I am a columnist for Angeles News, which is the publication of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And it's one of my, the fav one of my favorite things that I do. You can find their work at angelusnews.com. And they have wonderful writers, of which I am the least wonderful. And I'm always proud to be in, in that circle. I'm, I, it's, I love Angelus News and my writing there because I am able to be as entirely Catholic and spiritual as I feel all the time. And that's a, that's a great release. And I really can give vent to, to all the ways in which my, my faith, my relationship with Christ my my daughterhood in the church are all the all the ways that these things um are the water in which i swim i mean it's i don't even want to say that they 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 excite me or they enthuse me they're just they are just who i am and it's wonderful to be able to write in that vein so i wrote a piece which was published a week or two ago and it's it's an experimental kind of thing it's uh i think i, I called it a a prose poem i'm not sure that's technically the correct term but it comes from many conversations I've had and work I've done with women who are suffering after an abortion and carry the, the pain of, of that act for many, many long years and very often find themselves at a loss as to how to reapproach their relationship with God, how to come back to the church, how to come back to a sense of themselves as, as worthy daughters of God, how to accept the forgiveness and the mercy that God offers them, that they know God offers them, but they feel unable to to embrace. And of course, this doesn't just apply to women, it applies to men, and it even applies to people who haven't lost a child through abortion, but maybe have lost a child in an abortion uh, of, a, of a daughter or a niece or some or a sister, someone that they loved, and they were not able to, they were not able to, to be the person that, that, that could have remedied that situation before that fatal step was taken. And they, they carry that guilt with them. So this is what this prose poem is about, and I hope you enjoy it. It is an age-old grief, a dirty, draggled bird that perches in a corner of my mind. It keeps quiet mostly, though his silence is heavy, a brooding silence that I can almost touch. Once in a while, less often, thankfully, than before, he caws the guilt that only I can hear. I halt whatever I am doing and listen. I'm glad when the sound fades. I'm not complaining. There were years when the nasty beast sat on my shoulder, peering balefully at the doings of my life. I would feed him bits of myself, the bits that seemed to belong to him by rights. 
It was wrong of me to do this. I know it now, although I certainly knew it then. Hadn't I read the word mercy, written on countless pages and in many languages? Hadn't I known since childhood of the forgiving flood that poured over the world, first on the torture rock of Golgotha above the city, and ever since, ceaselessly repeating on sacrificial altars everywhere? I went seeking mercy, yes, and sounded out the litanies, soothed by their insistent rhythms. I assented eagerly and hopefully. I believe, help my unbelief. In curtained, tiny alcoves I knelt, waiting for the bath of grace. It flowed through the pierced veil from dimly seen lips, warm with the breath of man. Eo te absolvo. But my dingy feather tormentor waited just outside the sanctuary, cawing, knowing my hope would wilt in the hot sun. What did he cry in his cracked, evil voice but the simple truth? The young girl, gifted with a staunch faith, had grown up to disappoint. Her wings failed her in her first awkward sally into a degraded world. She who should have flown sank instead. Nothing very strange here, you say. This is the self-same story of every human soul. Only one daughter of Eve walked with clean, pure feet on the earth. Only one woman had nothing to shake off her souls when she took wing. But that seedy crow in the corner speaks of the darkest things. There's something blacker in its wings than the ink of space, gloomier than the moldy coat of a Dickensian undertaker. The prophet reviled King David, but what is it to my sin, the theft of a poor man's only sheep? David sinned for beauty, at least, and the life he took was only that of a comrade in arms, not that of his own hidden child. My prophet bird croaks, accusing, of pointless shallow sins born of ennui. There was no overpowering burst, no pulsing love that ravished me into wickedness. I sold a high birthright for a mess of porridge, sticky and insipid at that. I'm not alone, I know. Beside me march legions of women and men. I hear their own dark crows sometimes, cawing in the space behind their eyes, in cocktail par parties, or earnestly and sadly on the internet. The world goes on its brutal way, saying that what we hear is nothing but the clanging chains of scrupulosity, the iron drag of dusty traditions. The world is wrong. We of the blackbirds know it. For years now I've failed to chase my tormentor away from the shadowy places in which he lurks. But lately, I've had grace-born glimmers of an entirely different hope. I'm starting to think that I am meant to keep him close, and that the Splendid One has a plan for both of us. I'm beginning to believe, really believe, that he means to turn my dark prophet into a glorious thing, a shining singer of songs of joy. Not the messenger of doom, but the herald of my transformed self. Sorrowing, yes, but willing to think myself worthy of the promises of Christ. Willing to be bathed by him, made clean and new. Lord, help me let you. Let me let you. Welcome to the show, Emily. 
Hi, how are you doing? It's such a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. You are going to tell us about your new uh, book, which is called Theology of Home for Arranging the Seasons. And it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful coffee table book, but it's also full of beauty that we can access for our homes and for our families and for ourselves. And before we get into your book, please tell us what is Theology of Home? And now to tell you, we've had your colleagues there, Carrie Gress and Noel Maring have been on the show several times, telling us about all their different projects and their books. But tell us what is Theology of Home and and how people can, can make that their own. Absolutely. So Theology of Home is a project that was started by Carrie and Noel and with the idea of equipping women to um, better live out their lives in the home, regardless of their vocation, um, with this idea and recognition that um, our time in the home is where we're preparing ourselves for our eternal home. There is several ways in which um, you know they serve women. So we have a lot of original content that comes from theologyofhome.com, and they put together the most wonderful collection of great reads, and it goes out early in the morning. So it can be, it's a whole spread of things. So it can be the, you know, certain things in the news that is of interest. It can be a fun design piece. It usually involves something with food and also something philosophical or theological, you know, feeding the whole person, right? And all the interest. And then also there are four installments of a book series, um, like you had mentioned. So they're of a coffee table book, um, you know, aesthetic uh, with all the beautiful images inside. But uh, more than uh, a typical coffee table book, it's also a very rich text to be found um, within these books with the overarching theme of preparation for women, um, you know, in, in the home life, getting ready in God's mercy to be with him forever in the next. Emily, so let's get to this book in particular. Again, it's called Theology of the Home Part 4, Arranging the Season. I was so delighted to be able to do a, a little review of this book. I found mm. it to be so inspirational, so uplifting to kind of delve into the world of sort of seasonal and rhythmic natural beauty. And your book is just full of words of wisdom. Like you said, the content is excellent. It's not just beautiful pictures, but wisdom from poets and saints and playwrights. And then also these practical how-to tips for how we can all arrange our homes according to the season. So you're a florist. Tell us how that gives you these beautiful insights into embracing God's creation and putting it on display for our families and our homes. Yes, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I've been sort of mulling over it a lot. <laughs> you know, you after you do a big project, you kind of find yourself uh, living in a little bit of um, introspection. And, you know, the one thing that I realized as a florist, it really was, it sort of piqued my appetite for beauty, um, which I think is an understatement. But it wasn't really until I started living out life in the garden, once I stopped working in the flower shop and was able to transition to be home with my children, I then realized I had to grow all my own flowers so that I could, you know, still have this beauty in my life. It was in that sort of returning to the soil that I started to kind of see this this broader picture of our our lives as human beings and as God you know this reality that he created us for the garden and that we were meant to tend the garden and tend to beauty and, and be um, caretakers you know that beauty is an inheritance this world is an inheritance you know for our children and to invite them in and it just has gotten richer and deeper for me you know over the years since I I left um, the flower shop 
But what's so fun is then I can have those those same skills and appreciation, you know, for beauty that I acquired you know, during my apprenticeship in the shop, and then um, as I as I grew in my role. Emily, let me let me make the spiritual connection that you make in your book by quoting back to you. You write, "What we cannot see in our Creator, we can see in His creation. It is with the gift of the flower, a powerful representation of the love of God, that we can bridge not only home and garden, but also the eternal." and the everyday. That's an absolutely beautiful sentiment, but I wonder if you could elaborate on that for us. Absolutely. So I think one thing that we come to realize in our lives, particularly as mothers, that we do have this deep-seated need for beauty. Um, and, you know, sometimes we can, and, and I suppose not just for the mother in the home, but even just women in the workplace, you know, when you kind of get to the grind of, of the day-to-day life, you know, we kind of lose sight, you know, we become, we can become so task-oriented. And, we just have to slow down and pause. And one thing that is so great about beauty is I think it universally stops people in their tracks. Um, I think there are also, you know, there are a lot of discussions between I, Roger Scruton comes to mind as far as, you know, is, is beauty something that is relative or, you know, is it something where you can agree that anybody would find this one particular thing beautiful? And I think that is something where flowers come in. You know, there's, there's really no debate between whether or not, um, you know, flowers beguile and stop us in our tracks. And when we take this beauty in creation that just is, you know, there's, it's extra, you know, whereas, you know, anything else in the garden is really sustains us, right? You know, we grow tomatoes and we have an orchard or we have a little berry bush or, you know, throw little lettuces in the ground and cooperate with creation in that way. But that is really physically sustaining and nourishing. Um, but what happens with flowers, I came to realize is it's those, those little beauties are just pure gift, um, you know, and they sustain something else within us. Uh, Of course, there are some flowers that you can eat, but really it is just an invitation I came to realize because as we have this encounter with beauty, as we're going through our day and we're piled up with laundry or, you know, if you're in the office and you're just, you know, writing briefs or, you know, doing whatever and you, you have that moment where you find something beautiful and it catches your eye, instantaneously everything else falls away, right? And you're given the opportunity to be present and then you're recollected and in that moment, sometimes that is when we permit God to break in. You know, we, we allow that still small voice to whisper to us or you know we just have that moment to pause maybe reflect and Emily you talk about this deep-seated need for beauty which I feel we need more and more as the as the world around us seems increasingly dark and confusing that that need to contemplate beauty to cultivate beauty to create beauty in a garden um, to be a co-creator with God and and I have found I have this marvelous new flower garden I'm a complete novice but I have had so much it, it's brought so much joy and I'm doing it with my daughter who's named Lucy Therese and just to sit there with her to contemplate just the beauty of a single flower that, you know, we sprinkle the teeny tiny little seed and then to just look at the multiple petals and the fragrance and the natural world is such a strong proof of God. So, and I just, we found this book so delightful on, on every level. And of course, you've, you've organized the book by the seasons. We're just coming into fall. We're moving from summer into fall. So do you have any particular advice for us on how how we might be able to decorate our homes in in the season of autumn. Yes, absolutely. So I think the fall is such a fun 
time to just take a walk outside and see what you can find. Um, one of my favorite things, which I was able to delight more in when we lived in Pennsylvania a few years ago, um, but now we're in Mississippi and I've yet to find any growing here. But one of my favorite things to do is to bring in cut branches. So in the spring, you think of cherry blossoms and they're just so much fun to cut and bring in. Um, and you know, if you bring them in really tightly budded, they slowly open. But you can have that same fun experience in the fall. I love Japanese maple and the fiery display that they put on is just unrivaled. So one of my favorite things to do is if I, you know, I'm fortunate to have that tree in my yard or if I have a neighbor, I've been known to knock on a door and, and say, do you mind? Can I cut this? <laughs> uh, particularly during wedding season, um, we weren't afraid to go out to neighbors and, and ask uh, if we could lovingly take a few snips. Um, but if you just take some of that, you know, or even oak trees or any of the trees that you see sort of putting on this display before they drop their leaves, cut a small branch and bring it in. And, you know, you can put it in a big vase and just have it tucked in a corner somewhere. And that's so beautiful. Acorns are so much fun. Um, I know here um, at our house, uh, we have these two really big pine trees that are really starting to drop all of their pine cones, which is going to be a lot of fun to work with. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside Maureen Ferguson, my colleague at the Catholic Association. And we're talking to Emily Malloy, the author of the newest version of the Theology of Home book series, this latest book centered on the seasons. Emily, let me ask you about the seasons as a as the the spiritual component of of living a seasonal life. I myself am in Miami and we have um, one season or maybe (laughs) I think we have one season all year round and things don't change very much for us as far as the foliage and flowers and things. But what is it about living in a way that's seasonally conscious? What is that? What is the spiritual component of that? Absolutely. So I think um, you know, I have been to Miami and, and Southern Florida a good deal, but I haven't lived there long enough, or I haven't lived there to see, you know, um, perhaps that there's any changes. Now, I grew up in the Northeast, and now I reside in Mississippi. And the one thing that I came to recognize that even though, say, in certain regions in, in the continental U.S., there is this typical four-season pattern, but in other regions, there are little hallmarks that you see that are according to the time, right? You know, there there can be sort of like a monsoon season or a hurricane season or, you know, different little things that make a particular season stand out or flowers um, coming alive at certain points in time based off of fluctuation in temperature, even if you don't get, you know, sort of the Andrew Wyeth winter painting landscape that, you know, seems so typical of winter. But I think what living in the seasons does for us is it, um, like I had mentioned in that encounter with beauty, it forces us to be recollected and present. But I think the one thing that we notice in our time that I have noticed Um, which I didn't really realize when I worked in the flower shop um, because the world was our oyster, right? All you need to do is click a button and the most amazing flowers from Holland come or beautiful things from the Pacific Northwest, you know, will be here in a few short days. So you can just have your pick of anything at any point in time. And then also just the, the globalist, you know, this globalism where, you know, the world is very small. You can have anything at your fingertips at any point in time as far as food or flowers. We lose this overall sense of fasting and feasting. And it's really interesting when you get yourself to live 
um, in the present and living seasonally in sort of a, a physical way, in a, a more secular way, that um, you have to live the fast. Right. So in winter, it's embracing the fact that there's nothing blooming outside, but also recognizing that there are still beautiful things to be found. And then when you sort of sit in that, that tension and discomfort of, okay, you know, there's no distractions, there's no shiny objects. I have to see things as they are um, and sort of contemplate them and draw realities from that. Then you can see in those first, you know, glimpses of spring, they really mean something, right? As the as your pastures start to become verdant, and you see those first green sprouts of daffodils, um, this warm feelings of consolation um, begin to manifest. And I think, you know, there is that reflection in the spiritual life. You know, I think very few people. Uh, live life um, in a state of constant consolation, and um, which is a grace for them. And sometimes you hear of that, and that is absolutely wonderful. But I think most of us, our experience is um, living sort of in desolation with moments of aridity um, and things are dry. And then there are those, you have to sort of live in that desolation so that when the consolation begins, you actually can contemplate how much of a gift that is only because you know the aridity and that darkness before. So there's just this really interesting parallel that exists in the physical world and the spiritual life. And there's so much with the cyclic nature and the rhythmic um, way of the seasons that it teaches us over and over again in the linear progression of our own lives. And I think there's a real gift that we can overlook when we just run to the next season, right? You know, um, August 1st comes and everybody runs and gets out their autumn decorations. And, um, and I always encourage people well, just live those last days of summer, right? They're just really precious and special. And you'll never see them again this year, right? And that they're so unique. And the same thing for Advent going into Christmas. I'm a huge advocate for just sitting in Advent and waiting in that pregnant pause, awaiting the Lord's coming, because it means so much more Christmas morning, the coming of the Lord and the beauty of poinsettias and all the evergreens and, and all of that sort of thing. And that the fragrance of pine, when you allow yourself to sort of be in that desert, that fasting and waiting in those four weeks leading up to the feast. And I'm just listening to you, I'm feeling a sense of peace and calm, just like I felt when I was flipping through your book. And <laughs> so not, not to get ahead of ourselves, but looking forward towards spring, um, a lot of families and a lot of Catholic schools love to create some sort of garden for Mary, a Mary's garden. So do you have any pointers for anyone who's interested in creating a garden for our Blessed Mother? Absolutely. There are um, a lot of neat things that can be done, and there a lot of people will ask about Marian flowers in particular, and a lot of times I will um, let them know that a great deal of flowers that we have, of so many of them are cultivated in monasteries, which is just like this beautiful notion. And most of the flowers that we know and love, even though they may not seem uh, like an obvious Marian flower, say like a rose, right? You think of the mystical rose um, or a hellebore, the Lenten rose. Um, most flowers at a certain point had the name Our Lady in front of it. So like foxglove, which is arguably my favorite flower out of hellebores, um, was Our Lady's glove, right? Uh, marigold was Mary's gold. So you can um, search and do um, and, and find if you really want more um, specific flowers for Our Lady. Um, but honestly, I would just say any flower that does 
and is really easy to grow is a gift to have even just going to your local hardware store and getting a packet of seeds, throwing them down <laughs> and letting them grow is a beautiful, um, it's, it's a beautiful tribute to our lady. And I think, you know, when you think of the, this idea that, um, so much floral wonder is surrounding our lady, right. You know, um, I, I love the, the stories of as she, the, um, that as she assumed into heaven, that flowers um, were just everywhere, right? Um, that's an old, old um, story. And I just, I imagine, <laughs> this is just my, my florist mind, but um, when I meditate upon the coronation, I just imagine the most um, opulent floral crown being put on her head, right? She's just this, this the mystical rose. Um, and so there's just, I think there's, no wrong way to go um, to build a merry garden. I, I think it's also fun to research um, different things that grow in different seasons so that maybe you have your bulbs in the spring and say your zinnias or your cosmos or um, even, you know, the fun little marigolds in the summertime that are really hardy um, to handle the heat wherever you live. And then going to mums and um, different fall flowers, uh, dahlias um, to kind of carry through. And then if you um, have this space where you can have some neat shrubbery sort of th to carry you through the winter and hellebores and snowdrops to put around so that they're even in the height of winter, there's still a little something there to behold. Emily, you almost make me wish I lived up north where we have winter and fall and spring. It sounds absolutely delightful. And well, I'm going to do my, my part uh, here in Miami to try to find those seasonal variations and enhance them. I love the idea of... of um, seeing the seasons in nature as as and, and connecting them to the own season to your own seasons in your life um, as i get older the seasons are changing inside of me and in my body and also in marriage maybe our, our listeners and, and and you too maureen and, and emily have have had this experience that in in, in marriage there are seasons and sometimes things Absolutely. feel dry and lonely and then and then there's a flowering and there's a time of spring and then Sometimes things get a little heated <laughs> and then they're better. And I like that. I like, I like saying that to younger couples. I say, you know, marriages have seasons. So I'm really mm -hmm. glad that, that you connect all these dots for us in your book, Theology of Home. For I could jump in, Gracie. <laughs> yes, if go I could ahead. just jump in quickly. Speaking of young marriages, this book and the entire series of books make great presents for young brides. Mm -hmm. It's a great bridal shower present. You can buy all four of them and package them together as part of a wedding gift. They're wonderful, wonderful gifts to a young woman getting married. That's a fabulous idea, Maureen. So thank you, Emily, for joining us and taking the time to tell us all about your beautiful book. And to our listeners, you can buy your copy at Tan Books and you should visit theologyofhome.com for more information and on, on this book and all their other beautiful projects. So thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to chat with you both. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, Jesus will show us how he is calling each and all of us 
to help him take in the harvest of his kingdom, the harvest of men, women, boys, and girls. He does so by means of a parable in which a foreman goes out to summon laborers for his vineyard at dawn, mid-morning, noon, mid-afternoon, and an hour before shutting time. Then the owner of the vineyard gives them all the same full day's pay. The frame for what God wishes to teach us is summed up by the prophet Isaiah, who will speak to us in the first reading this Sunday. Through him, God tells us famously, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. Each of us can see the validity of this truth by the typical reaction we have to Jesus' parable. Without the prodding of any labor union, we're prone to agree with the beef of those who worked a grueling 12-hour day, but who didn't receive a penny more than those who worked only one hour. Human beings in general are envious of those who have seemed to have it easier. To have our thoughts become more like God's thoughts and our ways resemble his ways, however, we must first understand the context of the parable, get to the root of why on various levels it offends us, and then examine what it's teaching us about God, ourselves, and the kingdom, the church, in the society he wants us to enter and help him build. Let's first understand the parable. When we compare the men who work 12 hours and those who worked for one, we think that the latter group had it better, especially since they all got the same pay. But this manifests our jaundiced view of human work, which we don't regard it as a blessing, but rather as a necessary evil. Work, however, is part of our human vocation, given to us before the fall, as a means God gives to live in his image and grow. As we do honest work, we not only make something, but we make ourselves. We build our character through the qualities we bring to our work. Moreover, if we understand the way work happened in the ancient world, we see that work really was a blessing. Men used to go to the marketplace in the morning, hoping to be hired as day workers. They did all they could to be chosen arriving with all their tools, running up to meet those who were hiring, selling themselves as hard workers, much as men in our country did during the Great Depression. The men and their families were living on the semi-starvation line. Those hired at five in the afternoon would have easily traded 11 hours of labor in the fields for the 11 hours of anxiety waiting in the square. These considerations bring us the first application of the parable. Jesus was using the story to preach to the Jews about salvation. By the time of Jesus, the Jews had already been God's chosen people since the age of Abraham, about 1,800 years before, inspired by the promise of the covenant. All of a sudden, a carpenter from Nazareth, who was working all types of miraculous signs to back up the authority of his potent preaching, was saying that others, Gentiles, even converted prostitutes and tax collectors, were going to get the same life's wage, the same full pay of salvation that the Jews were. Even though they too could be saved, it just didn't seem fair to them. After all, weren't those who had kept the Mosaic Law with such exactitude and rigor for centuries entitled to something special? The Lord's generosity in freely offering salvation to others like he would to the good thief on the cross was making them jealous. But they were flawed in looking at their covenant with God as a burden rather than a blessing. The expression the master in the parable says today, are you envious because I'm generous? is a loose translation of the Greek St. Matthew employs, which says, Is your eye evil because I'm good? The generosity of God can make us angry because we think that if we're to win, others somehow must be left behind, that we can't be happy and enjoy the fruits of our work unless others, those who haven't made the same good choices we have, are unhappy. So the first lesson that the Lord wants us to take from this parable is that he continues to call others into his vineyard to join those whom he called earlier. 
we hope our thoughts to become more like God's thoughts and our ways his ways, then we must rejoice when others are hired for the work of the kingdom. Moreover, if our thoughts and ways resemble his, then we must strive to work with Jesus to let everyone know that there are still job openings in the fields. But there's a second lesson from the parable. When those of us who are cradle Catholics hear it, we instinctively think we relate to those hired at 6 a.m. in the story because we think we've been in the vineyard from the day of our baptism. But the Lord wants us to recognize that it's more likely that many of us are still in the marketplace. We haven't yet begun to work. We may regularly visit the vineyard, but we haven't yet rolled up our sleeves as laborers working up a serious sweat, bringing in the Lord's harvest to an apostolate that brings the gospel to others and brings others to Christ. In the parable, we see how the master representing Jesus exhausts himself, even in comparison to the workers who are hired first thing in the morning. Despite the fact that he had a foreman whom he, whom he could have sent out to do the hiring, the master himself, representing Jesus, went out to hire at 6, 9, 12, 3, and 5. He was even willing to lose money to hire people at the end of the day, not only because he cared about the harvest, which represents the ever-urgent harvest of souls, but because he didn't want anyone excluded from the work of and in his kingdom. His going out at 5 in the afternoon shows his passion that everyone come to his vineyard to work. After all, he had already gone out four times that day to hire everyone who was there at that time. God is calling us to work because that's the way we'll grow as disciples and begin to look at things from his perspective. This Sunday, we can say thanks to a particular group of laborers. It's Priesthood Appreciation Sunday in the United States, organized for many years now by the U.S. Council of Sarah International. Whether men were ordained very young in life at 25 or called decades later, we give thanks for the hard work of these priest laborers, and we pray for them, that they will be blessed by the Lord for their service as the Lord's good and faithful servants. So I already mentioned, however, the master of the harvest doesn't just send out priests for his harvest, but all of us. This Sunday, Jesus will look each of us straight in the eye and say, you too go work in my vineyard. If we respond to the blessing of that calling, if we roll up our sleeves and help him to spread and strengthen the faith, then it will give us not just a denarius, not just a full day's wage, but the abounding generous reward of an eternal life. There's much work to do and out of love for others and for us, God is sending us to do it and strengthening us by giving us his body and blood at mass, not only to provide us the stamina for the work, but as a down payment of the reward he wishes to give us forever. He's hired us to continue his mission. Let's get started. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 